Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, welcome to the New Books in Jewish Studies podcast. I am your host, Ari Barbalat. Today, I am blessed and I am honored to be in dialogue with Anton Weiss-Wendt. He is research professor at the Norwegian Center for Holocaust and Minority Studies. We will be discussing his book, On the Margins, Essays on the History of Jews in Estonia, published in Budapest by Central European University Press, 2017. Anton, thank you for being with me today. I'm so lucky. It's a pleasure, Ari. Uh, Hi, everyone. (laughs) To begin, can you kindly tell us about yourself? What inspired your personal and intellectual journey into Holocaust studies? Uh, Sure. Um, I'm born in Estonia. Um, Bringing that my parents, both parents studied in Russia. We're talking about their 70s. So I spent my childhood in provincial Russia. Then we returned to Estonia in 1988. I finished high school there and uh, entered university, University of Tartu. That's pretty much the only real university in Estonia. I studied more than history there, but um, early on I got interested kind of in the local history of my hometown, very particularly the period of Soviet and Nazi occupation. And then as it turned out, there um, there was a Jewish forced labor camp in my town, it's town of Narva, right on the Russian border. So I got really interested in that. Until then, I didn't hear much about the Nazi mass murder of the Jews, or the Holocaust. And as it turned out, that the whole area west of Narva, perhaps next maybe 70 square kilometers, was dotted with their four Jewish forced labor camps during the Second World War, late 1943-44, so it sparked my interest even further. And as I was looking, you know, going to university, uh, university of Tartu Library, I mean, I found very little about on the Holocaust in Estonia. Basically, no publication whatsoever, besides some secondary materials uh, published in Israel. And so I started, uh, well, kind of well, studying this subject and. Uh, but um, we, we don't have, I think, not until today, we don't have proper Jewish studies or what we call Holocaust studies in Estonia. So I wanted to continue my studies. And I, as a Fulbright student, I went to New York University, studied there with David Engel, and then went on to Brandeis University. And I got my degree in Near Eastern and in Judaic Studies with focus on East European uh, Jewish history and the Holocaust. I worked for one year in UK and Kiel University, was teaching Soviet history, and since 2005, uh, I work here first as a head of a research department, and now as a research professor at the Norwegian Center for Holocaust and Minority Studies. I've been here for now for 17 years. And the book that you mentioned, yes, it's a collection of essays on everything, what I published until that uh, date on Jewish history, um, in Estonia, and some of the chapter is based on another book, which was also my dissertation. Uh, uh, that's uh, the book about uh, local collaboration and Holocaust in Estonia. What inspired 
you to engage in research on the history of the Shoah in Estonia? Well, this said it was kind of personal story. As I mentioned, this personal discovery of this uh, fact that the Jewish forced labor camp was there. But also my personal history is quite interesting. I don't know if we get to that to that in the interview as well. And my paternal grandfather was Jewish. The fact that I didn't know until I was maybe, you know, 20, something like this. I mean, he was assimilated a German Jew or who were in 19. Uh, 34 uh, asked for political asylum in the Soviet Union, uh, was granted, actually not even, not just asylum, but Soviet citizenship ended up in Soviet Ukraine, and then uh, was repressed. Uh, he, he was sentenced to 10 years of forced labor as alleged German spy. So, I mean, he was communist and he um, kept his Jewish identity so therefore, I mean, it was kind of, um, he didn't talk about it much or didn't want for him. I mean, was, you know, ideology. He was one of those individuals for whom, you know, the world consisted of, he saw the world as black and white. There was a fascism and there was a communism talking about, you know, late uh, late 20s, early 30s. So he really kind of effectively rejected his Jewish identity. So I remember when my, grand, my, first, my, my grandfather, when he learned that, I'm interested in the subject of the Holocaust, the Jewish history. He was very surprised because I guess he suppressed it inside himself. And suddenly, without any reference to, you know, personal history, his grandson got interested to that. So, I mean, so I guess personal history also played a role in a sense. Can you summarize your book for us? What are the key ideas and themes presented? Um Sure, in terms of a thesis, or I think I already summarized it, probably not very sort of pointed thesis, because I really, even today, I mean, there is fairly little that's been written on the history of Jews in Estonia. It's, it relates to any period, including the Holocaust. So the idea was really to, uh, to collect whatever I published, articles, book chapters in one book, and also uh, present this kind of body of knowledge as a sort of starting point for someone who may hypothetically be interested in that subject and pursue it further. Because uh, at the end of the book, I even give um, uh, the list of archival uh, collections uh, related to the history of the Jews in Estonia, particularly into what period between 1917 and 1941, uh, with belief that you know someone like yourself, <laughs> or more likely people in Estonia will pick up the book and they will basically fill in the gaps. And as I argue in the book, in terms of periods that really kind of very conducive to conducting a research in the history of Jews, I mean, it's definitely into a period that so would be very uh, kind of very, very good subject for a PhD, for example. I mean, the history of Jews in Nietzsche Estonia, but also post war period, uh, which is uh, much less documented, but also a fascinating, of course, a fascinating chapter in a history of Jews, uh, well, in this particular case, uh, Estonia. So basically it was really the idea was like giving kind of giving out whatever is available and in the hope that someone else will pick up the torch, so to speak. Why is the history of the Holocaust in Estonia comparatively understudied? What can be done to rectify this? Oh, well, that's a good question. Um, on the one hand, it's pretty obvious. Uh, Estonian Jewish community Tradition has been very, well, numerically very small. 
At the maximum uh, was probably about 5,000 people. That was on the eve of the Bolshevik Revolution. Uh, during the interwar period, about 4,500. And now, I don't know the most recent figures, but we're talking about just a couple of thousands. Estonia uh, was situated outside of a so-called uh, Jewish Pale of Settlement within the Russian Empire. Uh, so Jews were effectively banned from you know, permanently settling in Estonia. So the first kind of more or less permanent communities in Estonia emerged only beginning in 1860s. So it was a relatively new community, was said numerically small, not very affluent. So in that respect, of course, it's a big difference uh, when you compare it to uh, the kind of the Jewish presence in a country like Estonia with neighboring Latvia, where there were about up to up to 100,000 Jews, not to mention Lithuania, up to 200 Jews, and of course, not to mention a country like Poland with 3 million Jews. So naturally, small community, and it's kind of translated in very little, relatively little academic interest in the subject. So here, I think there is not so much of a surprise, um, but still, I would say, I mean, I was a bit surprised because after a publication of my two books, I mean, I also would ex kind of expect it that probably more will be, you know, more people will pick up the subject, but no, it's not the case, really. I mean, Estonia, I mean, there are quite several scholars who study sort of, um, or let's say theology, or let's say linguistics, they're a very good Yiddishist, um, yeah, but in terms of history, and I'm, I'm, as a historian myself, obviously I would like to read more of, you know, history of the Jews in Estonia. I mean, it's not, not, not so much has been actually done since, these two books sort of came out in 2010 and 2013, respectively. Um, I don't know, is it just the size of the community for something else? Hard to tell, really. What findings of yours in this book would surprise a veteran scholar of Estonian history or a seasoned specialist in the history of the Holocaust? Well, when it comes to Estonian history, again, the previous question as to what I wanted to contribute with the book, and, and of course, I uh, should have mentioned is that I just wanted to integrate it, the history of Jews and the history of Estonia to show that, well, history of the small minority belongs to the broader history of Estonia and Estonians. When it comes to the Holocaust, of course, it will be probably more relevant to my other book, uh, my PhD thesis, The Murder Without Hatred, uh, because that, that book did, dedicated specifically to the history of the Holocaust. And uh, what would surprise seasoned Holocaust scholar? Quite a few things. I mean, on the one hand, as I, as I mentioned already, it's a small community. Uh, uh, but still the Holocaust kind of um, was carried out in the story in the different, in the significantly different ways than the other you know, German-occupied East European countries. And here, of course, the most likely, and again, most natural comparison would be the neighboring, again, Latvia and Lithuania. Well, first, uh, if we compare three countries, uh, chronologically, Estonia was uh, uh, captured by the Germans the last. So the Jews who live in Estonia, about three-fourths of the Jewish community managed to flee across the Russian border to Russia proper. So then they, they survived. Uh, at the same time, the Jews who stayed in the country, and you're talking under 1,000 people, 1,000 individuals, all were murdered. 
and then all the murdered basically all the dirty work in Estonia was done by the Estonians, by the ethnic Estonians. Uh, at the same time, where he was seeing well, and something which is well known in Holocaust historiography and history in general, the anti-Jewish pogroms uh, that took place across this rim, you know, Western Soviet borderlands, but the first occupied by the Soviets and then occupied by the Germans, starting from, you know, Western Ukraine, Lithuania, Latvia. We don't have anything like this happening in Estonia. Why? The natural question. Well, again, because one factor was that the community was very small. I mean, whoever individuals still stayed in the country under 1,000, most of them lived in cities, Tallinn, Tartu, and a few others. So it was very easy to identify them. Um, so there was no need to kind of to sponsor well, anti-Jewish violence. Or, uh, there was no ghettos for exactly the same reason, because I mean, there was no need to concentrate the Jews I mean, basically, the police knew where they were living, so it was very easy to apprehend and well, arrest them, and to, to send them to prison. In most cases, uh, Tallinn Central Prison. The building, by the way, is still standing uh, in downtown Tallinn. Uh, and then another peculiarity that I discuss at, at length in the book is the way the Holocaust was carried out. It was Estonian security police that was acting on German orders and they did it in a very kind of orderly way if you if you will kind of pseudo legal way where the Estonia was again exceptional case because again I don't know any other um, countries or, or regions in Europe where it would be the case that the Jews were prosecuted sort of legally so that the, the police opened investigation into each individual case exactly because there were so few Jews so they could do that. Obviously, you know, in a country like Poland or Lithuania with hundreds of thousands of Jews, that was not possible. And even though it was very clear, I mean, we know in a nutshell what final solution was all about. So all the Jews were supposed to be murdered in the end. But in Estonia, the way the system worked it was all delegated to the Estonians and they were given a chance to proceed in this kind of, as I said, pseudo-judicial sort of way that appeal to the local city, uh, local population, which could say, well, look, we're not savages like the NKVD, like the Russians, the Soviets. Look, we deal, it's all it's just a matter of law. You know, if someone was offend, you know, committed offense against the law, it just happened to be Jewish, then they should be prosecuted. So everything was done in kind of, you know, I already mentioned several times, then the way the way ordinarily said the judicial way. So that was another peculiarity. Um then, uh, when I we started with the first question, how I came across the subject of the Holocaust, and I mentioned Jewish forced labor camps, sort of by basically the spring of 1942, Estonia was uh, so-called free of Jews. Judenfrei, as the Germans, uh, the German lingua, Nazi lingua went, and that was really indeed the first country in Europe was proclaimed free of Jews. But then, in this, in the fall of 1943, the Germans bring to Estonia up to 10,000 Jews from the dismantled ghettos in Lithuania, mainly some of them in Latvia, so Vilnius, Kaunas, and Riga, Kaiserwald is next uh, next to the capital of Latvia, and they bring them to Estonia to work. 
in the minds of building fortification, not necessarily not, not to murder them in Estonia, but actually to work, even though at the end about 60% 60, 60 of those Jews perished as well. But that was also quite remarkable in a country which was free of Jews suddenly appeared up to 10,000 Jews, which I mean, Estonia never, never again had so many Jews as in the, in the fall of 43 and the spring of 1944. And I can, of course, go on with other peculiarities, but probably we can discuss it uh, uh, a bit later. Can you describe the most important works of Estonian historiography pertaining to the Holocaust? What books have been most influential? What do they describe? Well, the list is really very short. One of my inspiration uh, personally to me was um, one particular individual. She was a uh, head of the Estonian Jewish community in the early 90s, uh, Evgenia Gurin-Lov, and she participated in the revival of a communal life. Her father was also, coincidentally, was very active in the Jewish communal life in 1930s. Originally, they came from Romania. And the, she published, I believe it was 93 or 94 book. It's called, uh, the, what's the translation in English? The Big Catastrophe, that's how it's described in, in Russian language, basically the Holocaust of Estonian Jews. It tells specifically what happened to the Jews, citizens of Estonia, basically in the 1941-42. Um, she, she was the first who basically went to archives and found these documents of Estonian security police. She found this individual investigation files, uh, which I mentioned, which are full of fascinating detail, fascinating insight in the history of the Holocaust. You know, how individual people really experience what it was for people, not just for a group, the Jews as a, as a people, but very individuals. And she also published, was also very important, the list with the names and dates of birth and dates of uh, death of Estonian Jews who perished in the Holocaust. It's 963 names altogether. So that was a very influential. It's a small book. Um, mainly it's a facsimile of the documents, very short sort of introduction to history of the Holocaust. But as a fact, it was the first such book it was published in parallel in Estonian and English. That, of course, where it was, was it still is very important and was very important to me. Uh, and then the second is uh, the work of Estonian Historical uh, Commission uh, that uh, work on that project in the late, it was established in the late 1990s and then 2006 published a very thick volume. It's called Reports of Estonian Historical Commission, Estonia, so this is my bookshelf, 1940-1945. And parts of it, I mean, this book divided into two sections, the first Soviet occupation and the Nazi occupation. And in the section of the Nazi occupation, uh, there are quite a few, I think it was six or seven uh, chapters that deal with the Holocaust uh, in Estonia. Uh, I mean, that's very good uh, work, I would say. It was produced by mainly young Estonian historians you know, with master degrees or you know, PhD candidates. Um, it's kind of encyclopedic in nature. There's not so much analysis there, but it gives all the facts and it's uh, published, it's in English. So it's really good resource, I would say for foreign, uh, for scholars who don't <laughs> master Estonian language, 
there's not so many of such uh, uh, historians or scholars in general. So, but that's where my list pretty much ends. I mean, that's the two works, I mean, that exist, plus, of course, my my, my, my own publications. There is not more, more to say about that, really. Who was Evgenia Gurian-Louv? Can you tell us about her? Actually, I just did. <laughs> she was the author detail? of that book, yes. Uh, I, I knew her personally. I, I visited her apartment. She lived centrally in downtown Oslo. It's a very, uh, very nice individual, as I, as I mentioned earlier. She was very active in Jewish communal life in Estonia. But then I also remember in the, uh, when I developed interest towards, uh, you know, Jewish history and specifically the Holocaust in the local um, uh, university, like student journal, a published review of the book. And, you know, it's academic review. It's the first, my it was my first academic publication ever. But as always with book reviews, I mean, you kind of summarize what the contents of the, the book, and then you find what is good about the book and what is probably, what could have been done better. And I mentioned that, and then she was very sort of felt no, not offended, but I mean, she was not academic. I don't remember what was her, uh, what was her profession, what, where she worked really full time. Uh, she was not historian. That's for sure. She is. She passed away since then. So she was a bit kind of offended that you know I found certain, uh, you know, parts of the book that I thought she could have you know elaborated a bit more, added something. Uh, but yeah, but but uh, I guess not no big deal. But uh, anyway, otherwise, yeah, she's an important and also Estonian Jewish history, particularly in the 1990s. Can you tell us about the Estonian International Commission for the Investigation of Crimes Against Humanity? Why is it important? Yes, uh, I already mentioned the, the big volume that they published. That was the main result and uh, basically raison d'etre of this commission. Well, uh, that was not anything unique to Estonia. In many, probably most, East European and Central European countries in the late 90s, there existed such a commission. Um, the kind of the underlying reason was in part political, because that was a time we're talking about, let's say, 97, 98. Uh, that was done in the wake on East European countries' um, kind of accession talks to enter European Union and the NATO. And uh, not so much probably West European countries, but the Americans were very concerned. And I mean, uh, that the countries of Eastern Europe, particularly former Soviet Union, the Baltic states in particular, kind of came to terms with their own history. And one uh, particular aspect of that recent history was specifically uh, German occupation and the mass murder of the Jews. And again, specifically local collaboration mass murder of the Jews. So kind of Americans really on diplomatic level pushed for the local, uh, for their Baltic countries kind of to deal with this issue and show that, you know, that they, I mean, it's not like, you know, shoved under the carpet, but they really deal, they, they acknowledge that uh, it happened and, that, and then they deal with this uh, tragic you know, page in Estonian, Latvian, Lithuanian history. Now, I know for a fact um from one of his scholars who was kind of closely, I mean, involved in the project, but he wasn't among the authors that said, well, 
the commission actually wanted first to publish uh, reports about the Soviet occupation. But uh, again, it, it was uh, decided at the end that it was politically more correct at least to publish it simultaneously. So, you know, Jewish, oh, oh, sorry, German occupation of Estonia and the so Soviet occupation of Estonia. And of course, I mean, the crimes that were committed during these two periods, basically from 1939 till, uh, till the fall of 1944, then the Soviet Union again reoccupied uh, Estonia. <clears throat> And uh, as I mentioned already, I think it's a solid work. Um, it's a good publication, good to have it. Um, but yeah, analysis is missing. It's basically just a fact. It's encyclopedic in nature, but that was important watershed event. At the same time, uh, coming back to a question uh, about you know the most important publication of the Holocaust in Estonia, and also my reply as to why or kind of my open-ended question, why there is not more published on the specific Holocaust in Estonia. There's also a sense that, you know, once the report was published and the report, I mean, it's not really a report. It's about, I think, 1,200 pages. It's weighed about five kilos. It's larger than Gutenberg Bible. And the sense was that, okay, now we know everything. You know, here it is. You have it. And if you want to know something about the Holocaust in Estonia, pick up, the report of Estonian Historical Commission, and well, this is it. So in a way, yeah, commission, of course, was important. As I said already, reports is an important publication, but in a sense, I mean, that's kind of signified not the beginning of research in the Holocaust, but rather the end. Can you tell us about your previous book, Murder Without Hatred, Estonians and the Holocaust? How was it received by Estonians? What are its key findings? What were the responses you received? Yeah, that's a good question. So that was my um, uh, basically doctoral research at Brandeis University. Um, Anthony Polonsky was my supervisor. Um, the book is only available in English. So it's never been published in Estonian. Um, there was a mm, good deal of responses when the book came out. I was contacted by the Estonian American state broadcaster uh, like state television. So they run an interview with me. And after that, I got kind of more response. I would say response was mainly negative. Um, something that I didn't quite anticipate, but uh, that was my first academic book. So I didn't anticipate pretty much nothing at all. <laughs> um, uh, this is a sort of fundamental research in the Holocaust in Estonia. I've been through 16 different archives, or you know, beginning from Yad Vashem and National Archives, Washington, D.C., various archives in Germany, not to mention, of course, or in Estonia itself, you know, post-war uh, trial records, records of German provenance, Estonian provenance, you know, Soviet records. So it's really, it's pretty, I mean, it's a solid work. I mean, of course, as an author, I always say that, but yeah, I must say that I, I really, I didn't, I didn't leave there any stone untouched, basically. And as I said earlier, Estonia, you know, small Jewish community, you can really go into depth and dig out, uh, you know, the documents about each, almost each particular individual. We know everyone by name. So again, I mean, so it's much easier in a sense was doing research in the Holocaust in Estonia than, uh, as I mentioned, for example, Latvia, Lithuania, not to mention well, yeah, Poland or, you know, Czech lands, a protectorate of, yeah, Hungary, whatever. Um, 
but also in this book, I tried to really to make sense of why Estonian collaboration in the Holocaust, particularly the first phase, uh, 1941-42, the mass murder of specifically Estonian Jews, uh, the Jews who had no Estonian citizenship, they had Estonian passports. Um, and so, I mean, the book consists of, I remember correctly, the book was published 2010, 13 chapters, so 12 chapters, it's really detailed uh, sort of examination of the Holocaust, various phases. And then in the last chapter, I tried to analyze and try to figure out why the collaboration. The reason and I used some, some theory, I, I fell back on the works and theoretical findings of scholars such as uh, Roger Patterson, uh, Irvin Staub, uh, Judith Herrmann, uh, but really try to, to, to make sense why Estonians behave the way they did. And obviously it's always tricky when you talk about Estonians, right, collectively, because I mean, uh, it's a thick, relatively thick book. So I also deal, I have come I mean, individual case studies, particularly individuals, let's say, who are perpetrators, right? But uh, I think negative response came on, on, uh, <clears throat> on account of what was perceived of me kind of collectively, that's kind of comments I refuse that I allegedly collectively accused Estonians or, you know, collaboration in, in the Holocaust. Um, and also in terms of kind of my theoretical approach, it was considered inappropriate, I guess. Um, this is also um, is something to do with a academic uh, tradition in Estonia or Eastern Europe and Central Europe generally, which is different from Anglo-Saxon. Uh, and the, the main difference is that in Estonia, it's mainly kind of, in a sense, from my perspective, a bit old-fashioned approach to history. Uh, there is this, uh, I forgot what was, a very famous German uh, scholar, I guess also historian of 19th century, who said that, you know, you have to write V.S. eigentlich gewesen war, which is can be translated that you have to to write as it actually happened. So basically, the idea that the kind of you, uh, you as an author, you basically uh, running a chronicle. You're just basically collecting facts and telling what happened without trying to kind of to go in depth and trying to explain why it happened. So and that's a mainly kind of academic tradition still in Estonia, uh, whereas in Anglo-Saxon world, which uh, probably most of your listeners more, more familiar with, it's really when, when you do your doctor research or you know, research on a master level, I mean, you have to provide a thesis, you have to argue something, right? This is what, that's where I stand, that's that's my argument. And so, I mean, that's difference also play out, I guess, in the mainly negative reaction that I received to my book. Uh, actually, it was my intention, and of course, I, I would be happy if a book has been uh, translated to Estonian, published in the, in the Estonian language, because obviously uh, it was also quite ironic that people who uh, uh, kind of reacted negatively to my book, they actually didn't read the book, but they reacted on the review that was published someplace in some marginal publication in Estonia. So I thought, of course, it would be much more beneficial. People actually got to read the book and then you can make up their own minds. And I even spoke to one of the publishing houses in Tallinn uh, that happened to be run by one of my former schoolmates from Tartu, who was intellectual. Uh, but then, then eventually the, the editorial board told me that, well, 
they would be willing to publish the book, but I had to rewrite my introduction at something from the reports of Estonian Historical Committee uh, Commission. And I said, no, I mean, you either publish it as it is, or we don't publish it at all. And so eventually it's never been published in Estonian translation, unfortunately, I guess. What does your research reveal about the Estonian security police? What was its role in the Holocaust? Well, um, <clears throat> Estonian security police and also auxiliary police, so-called self-defense, were basically uh, the main well, means of destruction. They acted on German orders, um, but in Estonia, as compared to other European countries, uh, Estonian security police had received much more leeway than their counterparts, for example, Latvia or Lithuania. And that was due to this kind of deliberate German policy. As I argue in my book, again, comparatively, the Germans, uh, and specifically, I mean, the head of the German security police, Martin Zamberger, head of the uh, German civil administration, and then the head of the Wehrmacht areas, these three individuals were most important, uh, German administrators, they proved to be more farsighted in terms of managing uh, the interaction between the Germans, the occupier, and Estonians, the, the, or the, the people of the occupied country, especially managing the Estonian nationalism. And by giving more leeway to the Estonian security police, as I argue in the book, they kind of basically distance themselves from the Holocaust. They could say, well, it's we don't have anything to do with that. That's where Estonia is just, you know, uh, dealing uh, with the Jewish minorities. So we're, we're nothing to do with that, basically. Even though the final decision in each individual case, each, each individual investigation, were decided by the Germans. But basically, they just sign up a uh, death sentence. I mean, not, not, nothing more than that, but... As I mentioned earlier, all the dirty work was done by the Estonians and specifically the Estonian security police that, well, um, identified the Jews, arrested the Jews, brought them to the um, mainly, well, local prisons or uh, most Jews lived in Tallinn, so most of them ended up in the Tallinn Central Prison, conducted their investigations and then handed it over to their death squads Either it was uh, members of Estonian security police or self-defense who basically executed uh, the Jews. Can you tell us about Dr. Martin Sandberger? Yes, yeah, so that's exactly was one of the individuals I just mentioned. So he was the head of the German security police. And before that, he was head of the Einsatzgruppe 1A. That was Einsatzgruppe, I and mean, well, we know about it, all, all about it that the, the one that operated in Estonia and then uh, north northwestern Russia in 1941. And then it was converted into sort of stationary office of the German security police. Um, Zanberger was a professional lawyer. He studied at Heidelberg uh, in Germany. He was uh, very, very smart, very intelligent. This is for example, if you look at his Nazi you know, membership documents or I guess, you know, promotional documents. He was really appreciated by the authorities in terms of taking initiative, uh, you know, being kind of ideologically committed. Uh, so he was a member of Nazi party since 1931. So he was so-called old fighter, you know, old Nazi. Uh, he was very young. 
uh, it was a wife, three children. And so uh, he, uh, before he was appointed head of uh, Einsatzgruppe 1A, uh, he was head of so-called, um, oh, I forgot what was the name, uh, basically immigration. Uh, in 1939, let's just take one step further, as uh, again, well-known fact, uh, um, the Baltic Germans from Eastern Europe, specifically in, East, uh, in Baltic states, were settled in Germany. They were settled to Poland. Uh, by doing so, Hitler wanted to preserve, you know, valuable racial material for the country. Uh, and but they have to live somewhere, and the, the Poles who live it was Wartegau had to be resettled, basically they kicked out from this area. And Zandberger was appointed head of the service that the, deported the Poles in order to accommodate incoming uh, ethnic Germans. So we're talking about the fall 1939. So he already had kind of a sense for his future assignment. And he remained the head of uh, Estonian German security police in Estonia until 1943. Then he was um, called back to Berlin to the headquarters of the high security main office. And after Second World War, he, uh, their allies uh, arrested him in Austria. Uh, he, he stood trial, he was part of Einz's group trial, he testified, and he was sentenced to death. And then his sentence was commuted to life in prison. And then, I don't remember what year it was, uh, maybe some of the listeners can correct me, I think maybe 53, 54, uh, he was released from prison. Um, the story he told, he appeared to be a very sort of, you know, honorable German officer, but one particular episode in his uh, testimony was quite unbelievable also for the investigators and something that I also examined in the book that Zandberger argued that, well, uh, he really didn't participate in the Holocaust and he want, wanted actually to save the Norwegian Jews, but since there was a high authorities in Riga, was a, which was a capital of Ostland, uh, German administrative unit that incorporated the Baltic states and uh, Belarus. Well, he sent them to outside of Estonia administrative border to Pskov, neighboring you know Russia, and there they were executed, but not on his orders. As it turned out, as I argue in the book, that was all lie. Actually, all, all Estonian Jews were executed inside Estonia and specifically in German or Zambergers orders. Um, yeah, and actually he was one of the <clears throat> last surviving high-ranking German SS officials, particularly officers of Einsatzgruppe, and he died, if I'm not mistaken again, 2011, something like this, in an elderly people home in Stuttgart. Can you tell us about Roland Lepik and his importance? Well, Roland Lepik was, um, uh, he was head of the German security police in Tallinn. And he was directly involved in basically arrest and mass murder of the Jews in Tallinn. And out of this under 1,000 um, Estonian Jews, about half lived in Tallinn. So obviously, so the, 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 uh, most of the violence took place in Tallinn. Uh, he served in this position for about four months. Uh, he was directly responsible in, the, in uh, well, in mass murder of the Jews. He also uh, uh, misappropriated some of the Jewish property. 
what was interesting, he and another individual, where is also high-ranking Estonian officer, Estonian security police, were arrested on the order by, of Zandberger because uh, Estonian security police, I mean, some officers, apparently the information leaked that they were using torture during the investigations. Uh, not specific against the Jews, but it could have been ethnic Estonians or, you know, whatever suspects they arrested, and there were thousands of them. And so he was uh, in prison and he was actually later executed, which again, talking about peculiarities of the Holocaust in Estonia, and again, sort of, you know, the, the perpetrator actually where he was, sort of, you know, eventually uh, executed himself. But yeah, there are several episodes related to the Estonian Jews in Tallinn in which he personally participated acts of violence. It has been uh, documented already in 1941, also during this police, internal police investigation. So that's again, quite uh, quite a, quite a remarkable it's a page in the history of, all, in perpetrator history, if, if you will. Who is Evald Mixon? Yes, uh, Evald Mixon. Sorry, he, uh, he was then the head of, um, of political police, or let's say, Estonian security police had consisted of political police, directly translated from Estonian criminal police. So he was the head of the entire police. Uh, uh, like Lepic, he was also implicated in mass violence, particularly, I mean, there, there are instances where he was hunting for some Jewish gold, uh, some particular individual around a jewelry shop. Uh, he, uh, he raped one particular uh, victim, a Jewish girl of 14. Uh, so he was quite notorious already in 1941. Uh, he was also arrested alongside uh, Lepic in December 1941, but he survived. He wasn't executed and he was released eventually in 1943. But his history is also notorious in the way that uh, he, not only he survived, he managed to get out of Estonia, like many other um, members of Estonian security police or self-defense. Uh, according to information that we have, I mean, uh, uh, he had, he got to, to UK first, and he meant to go to South America, which we know was a kind of safe heaven for quite a few <laughs> Nazi war criminals, including Adolf uh, Eichmann, of course, most notorious, notoriously known. But he ended up, uh, for whatever reason, in Iceland. And he lived actually until the rest of his life in Iceland. The Soviets during the 60s, 60s tried to, to, get, uh, to get him back, uh, tried to get him extradited, but Icelandic government, it was a Cold War. They didn't have any agreement on the extradition agreement and they refused basically to surrender him to the Soviets. And um, he had a pretty good life there in the Reykjavik. He had a uh, uh, Icelandic wife, they have children, and he was actually the, the coach of Icelandic basketball team, uh, <laughs> first ever. So I think he was quite celebrated in Iceland, but of course, it wasn't known what was his role in the Holocaust or in the mass crimes committed in Estonia during the, the German occupation, really. So and he died in peace in Iceland. I don't remember when exactly. Who is Miriam Lepp? Um, Miriam Lepp is... Um, uh, she was one of the Jewish uh, victims. Um, and her case, or her investigation case, 
which is still available in Estonian National Archives, also the copies available in the U.S. Holocaust Memorial Museum in Washington, D.C. It's one of the uh, probably the most lengthy investigation files, but runs into about uh, 35 pages. And it's quite remarkable because it's really uh, shows kind of all the internal workings of the the way the well, the Holocaust mass murder was uh, kind of implemented in Estonia. Uh, first, I uh, should mention perhaps that it has been kind of discussion Holocaust studies for a while. Uh, that uh, you know when the Nazis decided on mass murder of the Jews as a group, or did they first wanted to, to go after the Jewish man? And in Estonian case, it indicates that yes, first if you look. At individual files and the individuals, the Jews who were executed first, it was exclusively men. Uh, it was not until late October, I think, 1941, that most of the Jewish men were already dead. Then the Nazis went after women and children. Uh, she was the one who survived the one survived probably the longest. Our case was not uh, launched until started until winter 1942. And it's very interesting why, I mean, you can read all these documents. Again, coming back to Estonian security police and sort of particular modus operandi they, uh, they implemented in Estonia. Uh, basically, in all these investigation files, what it is, they're trying to pin Jews to particular crimes. Either they were communists or they collaborated with them, Pevedeo or did any other things, you know, betrayed Estonians, basically to show that, you know, we're not persecuting Jews because of their ethnicity or religion, but because of what they've done. And of course, I mean, all those people, if you think even logically, considering that three-fourth of the Estonian Jews managed to flee to, to Russia, or to, so to the Soviet Union proper, the people who remain probably felt that they were safe. They didn't do anything objectionable during the Soviet occupation. And some of them even were waiting for the Germans to come. And again, so the familiar stories from Eastern Europe, right? Why, why didn't they live? We kind of think retrospectively. And Miriam Lepp was one of his individuals who had no intention to flee. She was married to a high-ranking Estonian officer in the Estonian army. She hid several Estonian policemen from deportation, Soviet deportation in 1941. She cut all contact with the Jewish community. She spoke exclusively uh, in Estonian, read Estonian literature. Uh, she even said, oh, you know, if, if you put me in concentration camp, uh, the Jews probably gonna kill me because I'm, I'm, I'm not Jewish at all. I don't want them to do anything with the Jews. They're kind of corrupted people. You know, kind of really distance herself from um, Jewish community. And so the Estonian security police was calling the witnesses. They, they wanted to get at least something against her, but there was nothing, you know? People came, you know, Estonian policemen, some business people, and they said, no, she's 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 very good individual. She's totally pro-Estonian, you know, she's nothing to do with the Jews. And so she was still under arrest. And I mean, and the police was kind of stuck because I mean that they had to prove that, you know, she committed some sort of crime. And at the end, it's very interesting because it really shows, you know, the logic of the Nazi final solution. Your file ends up on the desk of a uh, head of the German security police in Tallinn, and he writes on the margins in pencil, she's Jewish, execute her. So like in a sense, you know, why, why are you bothered even? She's Jewish. I mean, just, 
you know, cut the crop, you know, just, and so she's executed next day, basically. Who is Rochelle Hanin? Can you tell us about her? Yeah. Um, altogether, as I said, 963 Jews, and we have about 450 individual investigation files, most of them for the Jews in Tallinn. So, I mean, altogether, if you um, kind of see so the quality of research, I think fairly representative file. And as I said, you really can trace, you know, individual lives, you know, what individuals really experienced in this month of 1941. And Rochelle Hanin was one of the victims. Uh, she was uh, a German Jew who uh, came to Estonia in 1930, not for any particular reason, she just for love. She was, <laughs> she, she fell in love with one individual in Estonia who was a businessman around, I think, candy factory. They got married in Estonia and she lived really apparently happy life. It's very thin uh, investigation files, not much you can gather from it. But what was, was interesting, the particular fact they emphasize in the book that she's arrested. And again, she, she's accused of being communist, of being you know, anti-Estonian, pro-Soviet. Pro and she said she was totally kind of oblivious to what's going on uh, sort of in Europe, that's uh, coming to a question, you know, how much individuals and Jews in particular knew what was in stock for them, right? Uh, and she said, well, you can call for the, my friends in Austria and Germany to testify, and they all tell you, you know, that I'm very decent, you know, individual, I have nothing against Germany. I mean, she's talking in the, in the fall 1941, and obviously she doesn't have uh, kind of a sense what's going on. And still in your file, eventually it says that she is a pro-communist or yeah, pro-communist and she's executed. All the same, basically. Who was Dora Ratner? Can you tell us about her? Uh, yeah, I mean, there's so many names really in the book and they really go into great sort of pain to show kind of really the what happened to individuals. And so she's another one. It's a very different case. Uh, she is a 14-year-old girl. She's mentally challenged. Uh, she is in a mental institution in Tarno. And uh, but she's Jewish. So I mean they got her file, and I mean the local Estonian administration said, Well, what what no, actually the, the, the warden in the mental institution said, What what should we do with her? She's Jewish. And they read back again on the margin. I mean, it's, you look at this document, it's written in pencil, but she's Jewish. She cannot be there. Uh, and they send it back. It goes back to the police. Uh, and she can't even explain, you know, she I mean, she just, all that she, they could uh, able to understand from her that her father put her in institution one year before that. I think it was in 1940. And that's it. I mean, she can't even communicate properly. And at the end, still, in her file, it's written that she's pro-communist and that she's something to do with Nkavade. And you would think like, well, oh, come on, she's 14 year old. I mean, it's not possible. But again and again, you know, that they, they have to, they have to pin some sort of guilt on the Jews. So to accuse them in whatever activities. And she's executed like everyone else. Can you tell us about Uku and Eha Massing? Yes. You know, like in any story of the Holocaust, of course, uh, uh, there are perpetrators and there's bystanders, right? But they're always uh, gentles and that means people who, you know, testify positively on behalf of the Jews. And there are many such cases, by the way, 
when uh, the security police, Estonian security police ask for uh, people to testify. And most of them, you know, there are not so many of them, but if you, if, you, if, you, if you look, for example, how many negative sort of testimonies versus positive testimonies, positive uh, testimonies actually more than negative. But in terms of saving the lives of individual Jews, the case is just few, at least known cases. Um, if you look at the Yad Vashem the database of the righteous among the nations, there is only three names for Estonia. Uh, one of them of an individual who lived in Crimea, in Ukraine, who was ethnic Estonian, and he rescued one particular Jewish woman, but she never actually lived in Estonia herself. So I guess, I don't know if you, why they put it under Estonia, but if you don't consider a particular case, there are just two individuals who are listed as righteous among the nations, and that exactly Hermuku Mazing. He was a professor of Semitic studies at Tartu University, and uh, at Tartu University in 1937, I was established a chair in Judaic studies, which again was something very unusual considering the small number of Jews in Estonia. And it was, it was only one, I think, in the Baltic states, if I'm not mistaken. So many young Jews from um, other Baltic countries, particularly Latvia or other East European countries came to Tartu to study Judaic studies. And uh, <clears throat> one of them was Isidor Levine, and uh, he actually moved, yeah, he moved specifically to Estonia to, to be enrolled in the program in 1937, and he studied under Ukumazing. Uh, it was kind of a liberal study program, they could pick and choose, but mainly it was kind of linguistic, some history, uh, semio well, not semiotics, <laughs> that came later. Uh, yeah, and so he was a student of Ukumazing, who, and Ukumazing was very kind of manifest anti-German, when the Germans came, he kind of explicitly said that he's nothing. He wanted want nothing to do with that, and he left his position. And he 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 he, he and his wife uh, hid Isidore Levine in the apartment throughout the war, uh, and that's how he survived. And uh, Isidore Levine himself became a very famous folklorist. And he, after Second World War, taught, and I think first. Uh, finished his graduate studies and then taught in some in Leningrad, some university. And he was, you know, as I said, very well known. I actually met him, I think it was early 90s in St. Petersburg and did some research there in public libraries. So yeah, so he was also quite um, well known in Estonia and he received some, uh, I think a word or something, some recognition, official recognition from Estonian government. And he died in 2000. 18 at the age of 98. So that basically Eha Nukumazing that the righteous among the nations, among Estonians. Can you explain the concept of extermination through labor? What is its relevance to ETH to Estonia during the Holocaust? Yeah, that's that's a good question. Um <clears throat> well if we're talking about the Holocaust or it's a genocide, Nazi genocide of the Jews, basically intent to destroy the Jews or as a group. Um, in scholarship, there was this discussion or this thesis that, well, and it was very clear that the Germans went through the, you know, tried to attain the goal throughout the war. Also, even in the last, you know, years, in the last month of the Nazi Germany's existence, uh, you know, they didn't let the Jews 
basically stay alive and then you know the so-called death march is then either took the group you know groups of jews from one camp to another and then meanwhile they torture them i mean they died out of hunger and basically not to 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 let them stay alive so i mean uh, so this is fall against this general sort of perception correct perception of the holocaust that whenever the nazis even uh considered or really used the jews as slave laborers in the end, they wanted to destroy them, even through labor, through like very uh, deficient, you know, poor living conditions for, you know, whatever noxious diseases were there, or the hunger, or whatever, just hard labor itself. And the relevance to Estonia is uh, basically bringing us back to uh, your first question, you know, what, what, what was kind of, what was the first, you know, regional, what to say, how I came across this subject in the Jewish forced labor camps in Estonia. So that was the relevance. In 1943, most Jews in Eastern Europe were already dead. Auschwitz work, Auschwitz cannot work at full capacity. Uh, in the summer of 1953, if we count, uh, as I mentioned earlier, 200,000, approximately 200,000 Jews on the eve of their uh, German attack on Soviet Union. In Latvia, 96,000. In Estonia, 5,000. Of that number, uh, about 53,000 still alive. This is a summer in 1943. But then, uh, and then they slowly dismantling the ghettos, basically, and having selections and taking them to Auschwitz and gradually killing them. Uh, biggest ghettos, of course, in occupied Poland, but also Lithuania, Vilnius, Kaunas also next to Riga, the Kaiserwald. But at the same time, the Germany already being pushed by the Soviets. And I mean, they're missing that they need workforce, really. I mean, they brought millions of so-called Ostarbeiter, you know, people from uh, occupied Slavic countries, from Ukraine, Belarus, Russia, Poland, to, to work in Germany. They're using Soviet prisoners of war, but it's still not enough. And... Uh, they needed workforce, basically. Situation they're becoming very desperate on the front. The Germans basically already, when it comes to specifically to Estonia, they're pushing back to their prepared fortification because, yeah, as I said, the Soviets pushing really hard from the, the direction of Leningrad. And um, at that point, the already Germans, the kind of what's essential for the war industry is like fuel, they need oil. In oil fields in uh, North Caucasus and Romania, basically fell to it uh, falling off. And so they, uh, they need it desperately. And in Estonia, there is one, only one natural resource, pretty much. It's called shell oil. This is uh, how to explain what it is. It's basically like coal, but it's white. You can produce, uh, you know, heat, produce electricity by burning it, or you can basically produce oil, the fuel out of it. It's not very good quality, but you can use it. And particularly the Germans were keen on using it in the Navy. Also, they were thinking of producing, you know, kerosene for the, for the Luftwaffe. And so suddenly Estonia became very important because they had this mineral, okay, situated mainly in north, northeastern part of Estonia, but they needed people to mine, you know, to go to the mines, to, to to man the factories, but also to build the fortifications against their uh, uh, approaching uh, Soviet troops of the Red Army. So, I mean, there was Hitler's decision that 
the Jews from the, the ghettos in, the, in June, I think it was July 43, all the remaining ghettos in Ostland, Latvia, Lithuania, Belarus, would be dismantled and the Jews would be sent to Estonia to work for, for basically for the German industry. Uh, so that what happened and uh, about there's still the different figures, but approximately 10,000 Jews, mainly from the dismantled ghetto in Vilnius or Vilna, Kaunas, Kovno and Riga were sent to Estonia to work. So that's would be the relevance and extermination through labor. We can talk about it a bit more what really happened in these camps. Can you describe the sociology and geography of the Vaivara camp system? Yeah, first of all, the name Vaivara, that was a small, well, village, I guess, in northeastern Estonia. And that's became kind of a headquarters of the system of German Jewish forced labor camps. For a short period, beginning in September, August, September 1943, until the end of summer 1944, when basically uh, the Red Army reoccupied Estonia. Uh, there was about 19 such camps. Uh, some of them were larger, some were smaller. Some of the camps were subdivided into several. That's why when you read, you know, survivors' testimonies or German documents, a different numbers of camps uh, come out. I mean, some claim was 25, but basically 19 sort of major camps. And most of, most of them were pretty much all but one where situated in this area where the shell oil production was taking place, northeastern uh, part of Estonia, from Narva on the Russian border all the way till well, Kochtlajarve, towards toward Rakvere, if, if some of your listeners know the Estonian geography, you can check it on the map. Uh, so Jews were, as I just mentioned, were engaged in different actual activities. Uh, they were doing mining shell oil, uh, you know, mining the factories, and construct engaged in various military-related production and building fortification for the for the Wehrmacht in order to you know stop the, the Soviet advance. Uh, so most camps in northeastern Estonia, plus one actual largest camp just outside of Tallinn is called Kloga. But uh, since the headquarters were located in Vivara, that was named after Vivara camp system, it was after under assess economic and military administration. Uh, it was just, I think, I don't know, 50 or 60 Germans who were running all of that. Um, but, and then they used some Estonians from the um, you know, security police battalions who were guarding the perimeters of the camps. Uh, with about, as I said, about 10,000 Jews who ended up in Estonia to work, not to be murdered. But at the end, and I was very, very, uh, conscious of providing also the death statistics. You know, I think it's very important so they can really relate. And according to my calculation, about 63% of them still actually ended up dead at the end of that year. And the rest were evacuated to Stutthof uh, concentration camp that's next to nowadays Stetsen, uh, back in the days called Stettin, that's in, uh, in, in Prussia, in Western Prussia. Nowadays, Poland. Can you describe the experiences of Jews in forced labor camps in Estonian shale oil regions? Well, it's kind of difficult because obviously it was 19 different camps, and I go into great detail in my this other book, Murder Without uh, Hatred. 
Um, it also has to do with kind of what sort of evidence we have about what happened in these camps. That there were some investigation that the Israeli police conducted after the Second World War. There were some survivor testimonies. And then another major source is the West German uh, criminal investigation in 19, particularly 1960s and the 70s, in the circumstances of the Germans who run these camps, uh, atrocities that were committed in the, in the camps. So, I mean, there's a bit of a disparity in terms of the sources. Sometimes, as I was arguing in the book, it's kind of very not easy to kind of to weave it into one sort of continuous narrative about the camps. Um, so some camps obviously were considered better than others. Some already had some sort of infrastructure when the Jews were arrived. Some of them had none. So they were living in basically in tents. And that was very cold winter, 1943-44. As I said, the Jews were specifically brought to Estonia not to be murdered, but to work. Germans wanted to extract uh, slave, well, basically labor from them. Um, there were some selections, but we're not kind of. It was not very consistent. It's what not like previously in the ghettos, let's say, or at Auschwitz. But uh, of course, the Jewish uh, you know population of these camps gradually were, uh, well, well reduced. I mean, if I may say so. Yeah. Uh, then in the summer of 1944, the Germans conducted so-called 10 percent. I mean, that's a German lingua they use. 10% actions, as they call it, and they basically in this 10% actions, uh, they literally um, executed 10% of the surviving camp population, but particularly infirmed and people with disabilities or whatever, who, who couldn't basically work. Uh, so despite the fact that they were supposed to be alive, and the Germans emphasized that, eventually when they already come to the summer of 1944, a significant percent of the Jewish population was destroyed. Uh, also, the Soviets, as I said, were kept pushing in. I mean, there was big battles in, in this part of Estonia in the winter of 1944. So the Germans already beginning, I think, in February, started drawing plans, withdrawal plans. But then they had the kind of saying, I mean, there's kind of back and forth, you know, should we evacuate, should we not? And eventually decided to stay put because this production was so important for, for the German military. But uh, Jews were very often kind of brought from one camp to another. Uh, particularly in winter, there's some horrowing stories how they were, you know, just dragged along the road and the people who couldn't walk anymore were shot. But uh, again, nothing that we don't know, let's say, from uh, the history of the Holocaust in generally. Also, the Germans, uh, German, you know, ranking officials of these camps very often travel from one camp to another and participated in selections of particular acts of, of, um, of in atrocities. So that's uh, that's why some survivors remember the same individuals and said, well, I saw that guy in that camp. And then there would be another testimony who uh, testified that he, he participated in atrocities in another camp. So they kind of moved around, really. Um, yeah, so it's uh, it's really kind of uh, it dependent on individuals. Some some people got lucky, uh, I guess, more corpulent, uh, you could work. I mean, uh, and, the majority were not so lucky, if I can use that word, really. But in general, if you look kind of from a German perspective, I mean, they were not very happy of having Jews as slave laborers. They much would prefer either ethnic Estonians or free workers uh, or Soviet prisoners of war, because they argued that the Jewish productivity was very low. And obviously, that was the people who spent, you know, previous 
three years in the ghettos. I mean, there was not much to eat. And I mean, they were not really, uh, you know, meant to be manual workers. So that was very kind of uh, expected really. Uh, but nevertheless, they contributed to our kind of keeping the, the German military against their will, keeping the German military machine, machinery afloat in, uh, well, uh, fall 1943 until the summer 1944. Can you tell us about the history of the Kloga concentration camp? What were conditions there? Who was held there? What was the death toll there? What kinds of cruelties were perpetrated there? What role did Estonians play in administering the Kloga camp? Yes, um, as I mentioned, that was uh, the largest and probably best run camp. And it was also the only camp that was not in the oil shale, uh, situated not in the oil shale region of Estonia. It was about, I think, 30, 40 kilometers west of Tallinn, the capital of Estonia, not far from Poldiski, next to the port. Uh, there were already pre-existing buildings there, so they just, in terms of, you know, prisoner quarters, so the conditions were better, but a number of atrocities happened there uh, nonetheless. And that was the largest camp, almost two, up to 2,000 Jews who worked there. Uh, they were engaged, uh, they built this uh, kind of, I don't know, I mean, how to explain, I'm not really, uh, <laughs> uh, well, I mean, they, they built some sort of underworld, um, like mines made out of concrete, and also uh, they built this kind of concrete, uh, I, I, again, I don't remember what's the name, you know, the anti-tank sort of, uh, you know, fortification. Uh, so it's very heavy job. They really work in concrete, and you know, this was very demanding. Um, uh, the camp, like uh, the rest of the Viver forced labor camp, camps were run by the Germans, but uh, Estonians again from the security platoon or battalion were guarding the camp from outside. There were, we know much more about Kloga. Uh, actually as much about Kloga as about the rest of the camps combined. And that's for, uh, for basically, well, one reason, or I would say maybe two. The thing is that when the Germans, I was just talking about, started drawing evacuation plans, they indeed evacuated most of the surviving Jews from the rest of the camps to occupy it from, let's say Poland. In Kloga, they let the Jews work until the last moment. That was for several reasons. Well, first of all, I mean, the, the Soviets were already bombing Estonia intensely, particularly military, you know, industrial installations. But the Kloga was kind of in the woods outside of Tallinn, so it was considered kind of safer. They could go for longer, producing um, material for the German uh, industry, for the military. Second, there was this idea, and again, coming back to the issue of you know, extermination through labor. On the one hand, uh, they, they evacuated their, the Jews from the rest of the camps, uh, but at the same time, Jews were expandable. So, so here we come already to the last days of German occupation, particularly the capital around Tallinn. Sorry, that's mid-September, 16th, 18th of September. And they still, I mean, having the production going, Logo, they don't evacuate the Jews, even though they had the plans. Um, 
but then it's already too late. I mean, it's literally scenes in Tallinn that the Germans, you know, boarding the ships, burning the documents, like you see in, you know, in blockbuster, in the Hollywood blockbuster, war, war movies. And then they said, well, it's too late to evacuate it. And then what do they do? Again, the logic of the Holocaust, and that's all the Holocaust, we have to execute them. And that's what they did on the night from uh, of the 19th of September. They said the death squad in um, Kloga and then executed uh, the Jews, including some about 150 Soviet prisoner of war were also there. Altogether, according to my calculation, 100, 1,785 individuals majority of them <clears throat> uh Jews uh, they executed I mean they, they were in the, in the ha in the haste in a very brutal manner I mean they they made the Jewish man build some sort of structures from wood then they asked them uh, it's very gruesome details but still I'm saying it's important I mean they they, 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 they forced them to lie down on this wood structure they shot them in the head the next uh, detachment of Jewish prisoners came, they put the wood upon these individuals, they shot them, and then they set them on fire. There was a four pyres. Uh, that was, but the Soviets were so near that they literally, the, the, the Red Army arrived there two days after the mass execution. One of the pyres was still smoldering. They really came to the, you know, the scene crime, I mean, immediately. And before that, there was already, I think, was Maidanek was liberated in, 19, in August 1944 by the Soviets, but the Germans evacuated the camp. But it's not only the fact that the Soviets came there kind of on the, on the heels of, the, of this atrocity, but there were also Western journalists, there, British and Americans. Why they were, I mean, I mean, and again, it's a discussion, you know, how much the, the Western world knew about the Holocaust, what they could do. They didn't come there for the camp. They didn't know about the existence. What happened was that the Second Front just opened, right, in Western Europe. So the Stalin relation with the Roosevelt and Churchill were pretty good at the time. So the Churchill asked, they congratulated Stalin on the capture of uh, uh, Tallinn. And they heard that they were producing some sort of torpedoes in one of the factory in Tallinn. So he asked, can I send some journalists to, to, to check? Stalin said, yeah, sure. But before they saw this production of torpedoes, they all traveled together with the Russian troops to Kloga and they saw them. So it was many, uh, Alexander Vert, for example, he worked on, a, I forgot, some major British newspaper. So there was many stories coming up in British newspapers. There was one um, American reporter, I'm sorry, I don't remember the names, but he published a long story in Life magazine in October about prisoners of Kloga, about particular individual who survived, who gave his testimonies in Israel, Weintraub. It was called Prisoners of Kloga who survived. And uh, so basically the story of the Kloga became immediately known, and not just through the Soviet eyes, but through kind of from the Western eyes. That was really, again, unprecedented, talking about, you know, what's so special about Estonian case study. And this is why, I mean, it's uh, really, it's um, it's very uh, typical, I would say. Uh, I don't know if you or some of your listeners probably, of course, have been to Yad Vashem in, in, in Jerusalem, particularly the so-called new Yad Vashem. Not so new, but, you know, the, the building uh, uh, designed by Moshe Safdi, I mean, where the new exhibit on the Holocaust are situated. So the first 
image. Like you, you come before you kind of go to a particular galleries, the 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 the, the design team, Yad Vashem design team, chose one particular image. And what image they chose? This pyres with the you know lying Jewish bodies at Kloga. But that's so untypical because really most of the Jews were already dead by, by that time, you know, September 1944. Uh, there was also Kloga was very unusual, and the whole kind of system of forced labor in Estonia in 1943 was unusual. So but at the same time, yeah, they chose it, I guess, for visual effect, I would say. But again, if you ask me, I don't think it's very representative for the Holocaust. But, well, they did what they did. Uh, so this is why we know so much about Kloga, really. It's just the circumstances, uh, the fact that the Jews were allowed to live for so long at Kloga, and, of course, ended up such a brutal death. Uh, in September 19, 1944. Can you compare and contrast... Soviet treatment of Jews in Estonia with Nazi treatment of Jews in Estonia. What were the similarities and differences? Well, I mean, of course, I mean, this is something that has been you know, discussed in scholarship already, even after the Second World War. So, I mean, I wouldn't say anything new here. But uh, basically, um, in general, I would say Jews in interval Estonians fared much better than, let's say, Jews in other countries. The levels of anti-Semitism were relatively low in Estonia. So the Jews were pretty well integrated in Estonian society. So there was not so much conventional discrimination, but still, let's say the Jews, there was kind of a conventional understanding that the Jews can't work, for example, in the government. Uh, so again, not something very untypical for, for this part of Europe. So when the Soviets came, on the one hand, of course, they confiscated the, the property, real estate, factories, shops, uh, from everyone, whether you were ethnic Russian, Estonian, or Jewish. So, of course, that was a big loss, material loss for, for, for the Jews specifically. But at the same time, I mean, Jews at once sort of became visible in the sense that, I mean, suddenly you could see the Jews in a position of authority, whether it was local governments or even in Ankavadeh. Again, that's the story even from a Cold War, the, the, you know, in terms of idea of a Jewish communism, you know, how, how many Jewish proportion of Jews working for the Soviet or police or, you know, structures. Um, so it was kind of, you know, double-sided uh, double sword, I would guess. Um, and then both the Nazi treatment, of course, we know not only they uh, confiscated whatever uh, Jews still uh, left, you know, liquid assets, you know, down to really whatever jewelry, clothes, whatever. Um, uh, but also, of course, uh, they murdered them. So, I mean, uh, it's uh, uh, the difference, of course. I mean, it's very, it's right there. I mean, it's sort of, uh, um, it's pretty, pretty obvious, really. What did Soviet-American legal cooperation in the early 1980s mean for Estonia? How did this impact war crimes prosecutions of Nazi perpetrators? Well, that's a good question. And that linked to, to this anecdote I told about Mixon. I ended up in Iceland and the Soviets weren't to have him back to put him on trial. And uh, they did, I mean, first of all, there was quite extensive prosecution of war criminals in Estonia beginning in 1944 or 45, but not specifically related to crimes against the Jews. I mean, the Holocaust, there was not on Soviet agenda really. 
uh, as we well known, right? I mean, it was a concept of, you know, peaceful Soviet population that was murdered by the Nazi German fascists. That's a standard sort of Soviet, uh, um, well, Soviet slogan. Uh, but then beginning in 1961 or early 60s, they started staging um, a series of open war crime trials throughout the Baltic states, also in Ukraine and in Estonia. And two of them uh, are related to the, specifically related to the Holocaust. One uh, to do with their execution. I mean, there's another phase of the Holocaust in Estonia, something that we didn't yet cover in the interview. In uh, uh, September, October 1942, the Germans brought two transports, quote unquote. One was from Frankfurt and Berlin, um, transport about under 1,000 German Jews. And next one from Theresienstadt ghetto in Czech, Czech lands, former Czechoslovakia. And those Jews were not put to work. They were executed on the spot, about 90% of them immediately. That was the reason why they were brought in Estonia in 1942. It was very different what happened in 1943. And so one, uh, one trial was dedicated to uh, basically to mass execution and Kalevileva, again, another sort of a camp not far from Tallinn, on the opposite side from Kloga. And another trial uh, had to do with their mass executions or Tartu concentration camp, mainly in 1941-42. But uh, the individuals who stood trial, um, I think only one or two of them still remain in Estonia. And, uh, uh, the, the rest of them conventionally kind of conveniently escaped to countries like Canada, United States, Australia, and I forgot was, yeah, I think so. So for Soviets, it was kind of also very propaganda stunt, like to put them on trial and to portray them as a sort of, uh, basically as a justification for annexation of the Baltic states in 1940, indirect kind of justification that said, well, they're all bourgeois nationalists and now the Western country is sheltering them. And look, they committed crimes. They did commit crimes, but in terms of uh, the context, how the Soviets frame it, it was pretty ideological. Um, and well, but the Western countries, like in the case of Mixon, they refused to extradite those individuals because it was a Cold War and there were very uh, significant East European uh, emigre communities in these countries like Canada or United States that protested and they said the Soviets just want to frame all these individuals. They were just anti-communist fighters, honest individuals who didn't commit any crimes. And so the thing kind of died out for a, a few uh, decades until in 1979, uh, in the United States, they established their Office of Special Investigation. There was a kind of push from the Jewish communities to investigate, actually, that's where we also see the kind of the renewed interest in, uh, you know, in the study of the Holocaust, almost the beginning of the Holocaust scholarship in the 1980s, and to not a small part, thanks to this uh, development in the United States, they started looking for the individuals uh, where they were Germans, but many of them were from Eastern Europe who came to the United States after the Second World War, but who uh, were alleged war criminals. Uh, but those were not criminal uh, cases, but they were kind of immigration, uh, denaturalization cases. Basically, uh, because criminal case, I mean, we're kind of getting into the technical details here, but basically uh, they work in the way that uh, the U.S. Uh, 
Justice Department had to find out to prove that they lied on the immigration papers. For example, someone like you know Mixon, although it's have to do with Iceland, would say, oh, you know, during the war I was working on the farm, or I was a student, I had nothing to do with the police, and, you know, try to prove it, right? Because, I mean, all the documents are in the Soviet Union, which is your ideological enemy. And so they needed evidence, basically, to, to prove that they lied. That means that it, to have the proof that they actually were members of the police, for example, not only that, that they actually participate in atrocities. And to get this evidence, they needed to cooperate with the Soviets. And so they struck the agreement with the Soviets that US investigators could come to the Soviet Union and Soviet Union would provide them with evidence, incriminating evidence against the individuals who stood um, denaturalization trials in the United States. It's a very long procedure. They, they do up to, they can uh, file up to 14 of appeals that lasted for years. In one particular individuals was implicated in crimes at the concentration camp, Karl Linnas. Uh, he was one of the bulls who stood in the authorization trial, fought against it for years. And then I met the Americans um, invest from the Justice Department in, I think, 1981, if not mistaken, came to Tallinn. Uh, and they were able to interview the uh, defendants at the trial, the two trials that I mentioned, some of them were sentenced. And those guys basically told them pretty much the same thing that they told in 1960, uh, uh, 61, 62. And then the American the Justice uh, Department could use this evidence in courts in the United States. So that was significant in the case of Carolinas. He was the first individual who was sec well, second individual after, oh God, was the first one from Belarus, who was deported from the United States in the spring, I think, or winter 1987 deported to Estonia, and where he was supposed to stand another trial, but he died in prison. But uh, that was quite quite a big deal in emigrant press. I mean, all it was made international news, really. It was the first individual who was deported against his will. He didn't, of course, obviously, for obvious reasons, he didn't want to uh, to stand another trial or ended up his days in Soviet prison, but eventually he died. But it was a big case. Estonian emigrant community was heavily involved on behalf of uh, Carolina's, his daughters in particular. But yeah, basically that's the relevance to it to Estonia. Who was Elizabeth Luigas? Can you tell us about her gulag experience in Dolinka camp? Yes. Uh, well, that happened to be my grandmother, and I told a little bit about my Jewish grandfather uh, from Germany. So he ended up in, uh, it's called Karlak, it's in Kazakhstan. That's a coal mines. It's a very inhospitable area. It's get up to plus 40 during summer and up uh, to minus 40 centigrade during the winter. It's a huge camp, you know, camp complex, the size half half the size of Belgium. And so he was there, and uh, there he first was doing manual labor, but eventually he was co-opted in so-called musical brigade. He he played uh, piano and he played also accordion. So if he needed someone to play piano, uh, they had the musical brigade. Basically, came traveled from one sub camp to another, entertained, you know, the the camp officials, the guards. They staged operas, musicals, you know, almost classical concerts because there's so many talented. You know, individuals ended up in the gulag, um, and for one of the operas, they needed extras. Uh, don't remember the name of the opera, but and my grandmother—I mean, that's her. 
uh, Elizabeth Luigas. Uh, she was arrested in Estonia. She was only 19, I believe, in the summer of 1941. And she was sentenced to five years of forced labor and she ended up in the same camp. So she, she participated in staging this particular opera and then they get together and uh, basically after uh, he was released, he was uh, uh, sentenced my grandfather in 1937. So 1947, he was released, but not quite released. Uh, the, well, he was basically allowed to live outside of the, uh, you know, bar with the area of the camp, you know, encircled by the barbed wire, but he was not allowed to leave the area and he had to go to commandant's office every two weeks and sign that, you know, to, the, to show the proof that he was still there. So uh, he waited for her and then she came out, they get married and my uh, my father, um, well, was born in Kazakhstan of all places, uh, Karaganda in 19, 1948. So, but basically it's part of a personal story, also related to the history of Estonia, obviously. Can you comment on the revelations in your book regarding Estonia's Russian, Roma, and Swedish communities. How does your book advance our understanding of the history of Estonian Russians, Estonian Roma, and Estonian Swedes? Right. Do you mean like interwar Estonia yeah. or oh, interwar Estonia? Um, well, as I started um, telling you know, the audience, you and your audience, earlier that uh, relatively speaking, Jews fared pretty okay in interwar Estonia. Uh, in 1925, uh, Jews, but also ethnic Germans, received cultural uh, autonomy, which was pretty unprecedented against in the context of uh, Eastern Europe. Not only that the, the, the were, they received the cultural autonomy, but also that uh, autonomy basically persisted all the way until the Soviet occupation of, 19, of 1940. As I argue in my book, on the margins, I mean, uh, Jews became kind of a benefactory of particular sort of power relations between Estonian majority and German minority. And Germans in the history, through history, you know, 17th, uh, 18th, 19th century, were land-owning class in Estonia. And land has particular value because our Estonian nation was based on kind of peasant ethos. So a kind of uh, confiscation of land was one of the big issues. Redistribution of land was a big issue uh, immediately after the Bolshevik Revolution and Civil War. So the Germans felt really afflicted by what they saw as injustice on the part of a, uh, our new Estonian state. And the Nazi, well, Weimar Germany at the time kind of vouched for the, you know, try to protect interest of ethnic Germans abroad. We were very vocal about that. And so the Estonian government, in order to net, not to sort of uh, aggravate relations with the Germany even more, they decided as a kind of giving a sort of a uh, prize, this cultural autonomy, but was aimed specifically at them, as I argue in the book, uh, because as one particular fact, I mean, in order to gain cultural autonomy, you're supposed to have at least 3,000, you know, the, the, the numbers of a minority should be at least 3,000 people. That means citizens of Estonia. And the Jews, the Jews were able like 3,045. They hardly got as many, you know, Estonian citizens. The rest they either didn't have Estonian citizenship or were had other citizenship. 
Uh, but there were other two minorities that uh, Russian was uh, numerically the strongest. I remember correctly the figures, I think 70, 80,000. And the uh, Swedish minority was uh, traditionally settled in Estonia because uh, Estonia was at some point part of the Swedish empire. They, they settled compactly just in this area where the Kloka camp was even west towards the Baltic Sea. But they were very small. There was just a few villages settled mainly by ethnic Swedes. So they felt that they didn't really need this cultural autonomy to maintain sort of, uh, you know, the schools, I mean, uh, or, you know, other institutions. And the Russians at the time were very kind of, um, was a big divisions between, you know, countryside, the peasants who lived on the eastern uh, border of Estonia next to uh, Lake Papus, who had very different interests from, let's say, Russian intelligence in the city. It was very much pro-autonomy, but they couldn't find a common language and basically eventually ended up never uh, exercising cultural, uh, uh, cultural autonomy. Uh, but yes, I mean, say in interwar Estonia, but coming back to Estonian Jewish relations, Estonians have much more problems when it comes to nationalism with Baltic, or with the, the Baltic German minority and Russian minority than the Jewish minority. It was, it was always on the margins, really, as the title, as the title of my book uh, um, yeah, says. <laughs> Can you tell us about Ella and Marcus Weiss? Oh yeah, that, that's um, my great grandparents, uh, the, the parents of my grandfather. Uh, originally, I mean, they lived in Germany, they lived in Dresden, Lower Saxony. Uh, but originally they came from the area of, uh, around Chernovtsi in nowadays of Ukraine. So they didn't have, in 19, living in Germany in 1920s, they didn't have German citizenship, they had Polish citizenship. And um, as I said, my grandfather kind of broke relations with the, with the Jewish community, with his parents early on, for ideological reasons. He was a communist, he went to hiding eventually, talking in 1933. Uh, and then he emigrated, as I mentioned earlier, to the Soviet Union in December 1934, and that was the last that he saw of his parents. Uh, I tried kind of to trace what happened to them, and obviously it's part of a family, right? And he did too after the Second World War, beginning in 1960, after he returned from the Gulag. Uh, he, he got the permission for the first time, I think it was 68 to go to Germany. I mean, fortunately, Dresden was in East Germany, socialist country, so he wouldn't be able to go to West Germany, for example. So he was able to travel to East Germany and he was telling us ex post facto that he was going to various concentration camps, memorial you know, sites and trying to find any information about his parents, but they couldn't. I mean, there was one organization in Eastern Germany that try to help a particular specifically Jewish survivors to trace the uh, deceased relatives. And for example, they said, the last he heard of his parents, they look at the telephone books for Dresden. The, the last uh, year that were listed was 1938. Uh, telephone book for 1939 already didn't list any of the, the parents and obviously in, uh, any other Jews in a particular city. But uh, finally, I got an actual letter from one archive in Moscow years, like 10 years ago. Uh, it was commentary and files, and the, the, the letter that his parents sent to him uh, from Germany, already Nazi Germany, to Soviet Union. And of course, they didn't know what happened to him in Soviet Union, right, because there was no contact. And then in this letter, they asked him, 
I mean, the kind of in very coded language, don't speak, they couldn't, you know, due to censorship, they said, but well, really, it's getting tough for us here. Can you please take us to Soviet Union? And I mean, in the next year, he got arrested himself and sent to the Gulag. But basically, he, he passed away in uh, 2000, year 2000, without knowing what happened to his parents, Ellen Marcus Mines. But uh, later in 1990s, um, uh, it was kind of a, a movement throughout Eastern Europe. You know, there were some enthusiasts who put together sort of Genenknik's Buch, you know, or Itzkor Bucher in Yiddish, like, I mean, kind of the, the, the books with the names of the Jewish residents of that particular place, what happened to them, at least you know, some information. And so there was one enthusiast in Dresden who put a book about the Dresden Jewish community. And she found out that at least Marcus Weiss he actually died his own death, uh, nonviolent death in Dresden in 1939. And he's buried in the Jewish cemetery. And the cemetery also hadn't been desecrated. So we actually visited his grave in Dresden. As regards Ella Weiss, uh, the last what we know was a letter to him and that was I think oh at least we know I don't know if it was don't remember it was letter it was from uh, October or November 1938 and she writing already outside of Krakow because she was one of these Jews without German citizenship who were who were arrested and dumped over the border after the Kristallnacht over the border in Poland so that was the last what we know about her I tried to look through the Yad Vashem uh, database or Holocaust Memorial Museum victim database, but there's so many vices, so many Ellis, but I uh, didn't see any trace of her. But most likely, she ended up like a great majority of Jews probably in Auschwitz Birkenau, I would think. As we bring today's dialogue to a close, I would like to thank you from the bottom of my heart for your time and attention during the course of our dialogue today. I can hardly be more thankful and hardly be more appreciative. I was really blessed by my time with you. Thank you for all your eloquence and erudition. Oh, thank you. It was really a pleasure talking to you and I mean to share sort of my findings. Or I mean, and I really hope that as, as we started this conversation, that maybe someone who listened to this uh, podcast or today really show some interest and delve further, you know, deeper in the history of Estonian Jews. It's really worthwhile. What are you working on now that this book is behind you? Can you tell us about where your time and attention have gone? Oh, yes. I mean, I work on different uh, subjects since uh, these two books have been published. Uh, I worked for a while. A big research project was into the political history of genocide convention during Cold War, particularly from a Soviet perspective. Uh, and, but another sort of uh, avenue of research I've taken was a mass murder of Roma people, previously known as Gypsies or Zigeuner in Germany. I published one edited collection of essays in 2013, and I'm about just signed a, a book contract with Nebraska University Press and similar publication. It's called People Destroyed, a uh, new research on the Roma genocide, 1941-1945. There is a 12 essay, so I mean, I'm an editor of the, of the collection, and I also have a chapter on the destruction of Roma in German-occupied Estonia, and also on the Romani death statistics for the whole of Europe uh, during uh, well, during the war years, really trying to kind of revisit in, in, you know, all the numbers of the, of the dead Roma because of very different estimates. Yeah, so that's my most current project. Uh, uh, 
the book is are in the in the pipeline, so to speak. So we're working with the press very, very closely at the moment. Thank you for sharing. Sure. As we bring today's dialogue to a close, I'm your host, Ari Barbalat, on the New Books in Jewish Studies podcast. Today it has been my hallowed honor to be in dialogue with Anton Weiss Went. He is research professor at the Norwegian Center for Holocaust and Minority Studies. We've been discussing his book, On the Margins, Essays on the History of Jews in Estonia, published in Budapest by Central European University Press, 2017. Thank you from the bottom of my heart.